This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Earlier this week, uh, Sunday was a very difficult day in the Northern West Bank, in Shomron, in the areas surrounding Hawara, basically. Two young men, two brothers, uh, Hillel and Yagel Yaniv from Harbracha, who were murdered while traveling through the Palestinian community of Hawara. Uh, it's important to note that the main uh, north-south road that both Jews and Palestinians uh, travel on uh, passes through Hawara, just south of uh, Shechem, south of Nablus. And uh, after they were killed, we saw the usual footage of Palestinians celebrating, passing out candy. Uh, these videos were being spread by pro-Israel advocates on social media. Uh, and then, of course, a few hours later, local Jews launched a revenge attack on Hawara, uh, torching several homes and several cars. And uh, that, of course, became the story. So uh, I, I think there's a lot that really needs to be addressed here. And in order to do so, I've uh, invited my friend and colleague, Rav Shammai Siskin, to join me on the show. Uh, Shammai, welcome back to the show. Hi, Rabbi Huda, how are you? Thanks for having me back. Unfortunately, under not such pleasant circumstances, but uh, I think it's something uh, that needs to be addressed. It needs to be unpacked at least, uh, at least as much as we can as things are progressing. Look, I appreciate that uh, while we're having this conversation, I imagine that some of what we say could challenge a lot of people on really all sides of this conflict. But it's clear to me that uh, we really need to be more honest with ourselves if we ever hope to create real change here. So I'm going to request that listeners really listen to us with an open mind and take time to really carefully consider the things we say, the points we make, and uh, try to entertain that, you know, we're not merely trying to present new ideas, but also trying to present a new way of thinking. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And I think that, uh, I think that the introduction you just made could apply to anything that we tend to talk about on this platform, but especially now. Uh, in the heat of the frenzy and violence that is unfortunately uh, uh, unfolding in front of us. So, yeah, I'll, I do have some thoughts on this and um, I'll share them with you and I'm sure you'll have, uh, I'm sure you'll have feedback and, and uh, you can jump in whenever you feel. But um, just, to, just to set the backdrop for what we're experiencing now, it's true that, there, that, that your description was accurate, that there was, that there was this murder of two, of two boys as they were traveling through Hawara and most tragic of circumstances. I think that they were on their way to a Shiro Torah, to a Torah class, uh, so a few weeks or a few days before uh, before Hillel's birthday, if I'm not mistaken. And this is not an isolated incident. This is not the first time that there has been violence coming out of Hawara. This is not the first time that people have been killed uh, from actors that live in Hawara. There's a very, very long history of uh, very, very intense violence that's coming out of this area. Um, and the fact that there is this uh, explosion of uh, a vengeful fury that comes out from the from the Jews that live in this area, uh, it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise. This is uh, this is the pent up rage that is uh, is building up over years, really, uh, in relation to this specific Arab village. And it's also coming from the feeling that the powers that be they have abandoned them. They have uh, uh, essentially let them be victims of uh, victims of Arab violence in the area. And, uh, and that's essentially where this is coming from. So that's, I think, I think that that accurately captures the perspective of the Jews in the area. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that, frankly, I will be very blunt and honest. I think there's a lot of truth in that, in that sentiment. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we began 
before we began the recording that a lot of people are uh, commenting on how what's going on in Hawara, the actions that are being taken in Hawara are very Maccabean in nature. They're kind of like a throwback to what was going on in the time of the Maccabees, that you had this uh, grassroots people's revolts that kind of just burst forth and, and committed these acts of violence. I think there were reports about how uh, some of the some of the rampagers and rioters, they felt comfortable enough to pray the Arvit prayer in the middle of the burning and torching. Uh, they just took a break, so to speak, to pray um, in a very public, uh, um, very public and almost bombastic uh, way. So there's this clear, um, almost religious element to this. And the flavor in which this is all unfolding is, uh, is very reminiscent of the Maccabean period. But I think, and with this point I'll end off and let you give some feedback, I think that the very comparison to the Maccabean situation, which I believe is accurate, I think that it is accurate to compare it to what was going on in the time of the Maccabees, I think that very comparison highlights why this is a bit problematic, what we're seeing. Because the Maccabean revolt, what was the backdrop of the Maccabean revolt? You had a situation where you had foreign occupiers, Syrian Greeks, that were in full control of the land, that had decreed prima noctra on the women, they were taxing the population to death, they were enforcing their pagan religion on the populace with threats of violence. And you had the elite uh, strata of, uh, of Jewish society in open collaboration with these people. And this was going on for years and years and years and only getting worse as time went on. And on the backdrop of this unbearable situation burst forth a grassroots people's revolt against the situation, which we call the Maccabean Wars. That's what the Maccabean Wars were. So. Thank God we had people at that time in history that had the bravery to stand up and make a change in the context of that situation. But the situation had to get so bad for that to be the necessary steps that needed to be taken. So basically what we're saying here is that if you're going to compare this to the Maccabean revolt, then that means that the situation in Israel has gotten so bad that the state apparatus isn't able to respond appropriately the violence of people who see Israel's very existence as completely illegitimate, they become so brazen in their acts of violence that they feel that they can basically act with impunity. That that is the situation. We've deteriorated to this state that this is basically the only recourse that people feel that they have. So while I think that unfortunately these, this, was, this was just inevitable and I think in many ways even justified, the fact that it had to come to this state is not a good thing to put it lightly. And I think it highlights the general uh, dysfunction of the broader situation that we see in Israel today. Um, that's my ramblings. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, <laughs> respond. I'm sure you have what to say. Well, you put a lot on the table. And uh, in terms of the parallels to the Maccabean revolt, I would say certainly the aesthetics of the Jews of the Sumerian mountains attacking the village of Huara you know, essentially burning down a portion of it, you know, burning down homes, burning down cars, and then feeling a sense of victory and uh, holding a tefillah service for Arvit right there on the battleground is somewhat reminiscent of the Maccabim in the Battle of Emmaus. We kind of see that because, you know, the battle was over, but it was Erev Shabbat and Shabbat was coming in before they'd be able to return back to their partisan camp in the Gofna Hills. So they kind of just took in Shabbat right there at Emmaus on the battlefield and celebrated there. So I think the, the imagery of these mountain Jews 
having a victory and then having this Tvila service afterwards where I imagine all of them were in their hearts thanking the Kadosh Baruch Hu for their victory. They really felt, you know, an almost biblical sense of triumph uh, at that moment. You know, that, that imagery definitely is attractive, you know, for obvious reasons to a lot of people, uh, myself included, uh, by the way. I think that there's something that I connect to very deeply there. And I know that there are also Jews out there who look at that as an ugly distortion of what Jewish identity is meant to be. But uh, I think those of us who are really um, more in touch with our roots, more in touch with our Torah, holistically more knowledgeable of our history, I, I think we see that there's uh, plenty of precedent to say that this is an authentic expression of Jewish identity. But before I get into the revenge attack on Huara, I really want to address something else because I think these two issues are connected. I think we have a problem that uh, is basically a problem of intellectual dishonesty. Uh, and I think maybe the Hasbara organizations like the pro-Israel advocacy organizations are somewhat responsible for this intellectual dishonesty or even just lowering the intellectual bar in terms of how we speak about these things. You know, when I see footage of Palestinians passing out celebratory candy, in the streets of uh, of their cities following an attack against Israelis, you know, I, I got to be honest, I can't condemn them for that. Like, I think anyone with any real knowledge of Palestinian society or the way Palestinians have been experiencing the last hundred years here, and certainly the last 74 years, um, almost 75, should be able to appreciate the impulse to celebrate a successful action against Israelis. And, and I also think it's unhelpful for us to buy into this bourgeois liberal pretension differentiating between attacking combatants and attacking civilians. Uh, we should be honest about the fact that we see ourselves and we see each other as collectives here for the most part. I think that Palestinians, by and large, experience Israel as a near invincible military bureaucracy that controls almost every aspect of their lives. They experience themselves powerless and crushed by the state of Israel on a daily basis. That's something we have to be honest about. We can't pretend that's not true. So when one of them or a group of them, whatever, uh, lashes out and manages to actually draw blood from that system that they experience as oppressing them on a daily basis, it makes perfect sense to me that certain sectors of their society would experience a sudden surge of spontaneous jubilation and would start passing out candies in the middle of the streets. That makes sense to me. If I were them, I would likely do that too. So I, I feel there's like a little bit of dishonesty in pro-Israel social media influencers or organizations on social media trying to condemn or show how problematic Palestinian society is because they pass out candy to celebrate the killing of Israelis. Of course, they're passing out candy to celebrate the killing of Israelis. And I think not getting that, not understanding that, shows the extent to which so many Israelis and so many of our supporters are really living in some G-rated movie, you know, some like children's movie version of this conflict. It just feels very dishonest and honestly, like emotionally immature and intellectually immature. So that's part of this. I, I think that we need to stop trying to depict Palestinians distributing sweets as like proof of some irrational, bloodthirsty Jew hatred. That only really serves to demonstrate how ignorant 
those of us posting these things are of the realities Palestinians experience. Uh, so I think it, it, it's just helpful to like, to not go down that road, to not make that the issue that's not the issue. There's been beef between us here. We've been in conflict with each other for over a century in this land. Uh, we have the upper hand and I could totally understand after decades of us having the upper hand and them, you know, living in the situation they're living in, I could definitely understand and appreciate why one would want to celebrate drawing our blood. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that you expressed very well just now what I was trying to allude to in the beginning when we opened up, that this incident is just the tip of an iceberg that goes very, very deep. It's really just expressing a much bigger um, dysfunction in the situation. I think we've spoken about in the past about how if you zoom out and look at this reality that we're living in right now, basically we have a situation where unprecedented in human history, where, where an indigenous nation is able to reconstitute themselves in their homeland, yet we relate to the heartland of our national home, Judea and Samaria, Yudav Shamron. We relate to this area in the same way that the Americans related to Afghanistan for 20 years. Like we treat it in that way. We've set up the dynamics in that way. While it is true that we need to take action to defend ourselves and all of that, but we've set it up in the way that, like, as you said, a massive military bureaucracy. And that is the way that, that all the people that live there, whether Jews or Palestinians, that's how they live. They live in the context of a massive military bureaucracy. And that's not good for anyone. That's not good for us. It's not good for them. And I think like what you said before about the intellectual dishonesty, I think that that's very, very poignant because basically what we're doing is, is that we're all taking for granted that we're dealing with this uh, default Western liberal moral standard, and we're calling each other out for violating that moral standard. So when we see the Palestinians handing out candy for, uh, for one of their operations, so we call them out for that. And when there's, uh, when there's uh, civilian collateral damage, for example, uh, in an Israeli operation, so the Palestinians call us out for that. When the honest thing to say is that this is a national struggle, between two people and, and each one of them believes a certain thing. And I think from our perspective, which is obviously the most important perspective for me, our perspective, the Israeli Jewish perspective, I think it's very important for us to get real. It's a hard, it's a, it's in many ways a bitter pill to swallow, but we need to get real in that there are people out there that see themselves and view us. They see themselves as our enemy and they view us as their enemy and they view themselves as, as in a situation of a war. That's how they view themselves. It's like one of the things that uh, James Mattis once said, it's like, you can't decide that you've won a war. The enemy has a say as well. <laughs> so, so we can go around saying all the time that we're in a certain situation, that we've achieved a certain stage, so to speak, in our progression of taking possession of the land. But if you have a population that views themselves as your enemy, believes that you have no business being here, and is willing to kill and die based on that belief, then that's a real problem. And you can't be surprised when they conduct themselves in the way that an enemy conducts themselves, you know, uh, like rejoicing and celebrating over your death. Um, yeah, those are the thoughts that come to mind. Go ahead. Right. It should be perfectly understandable that anyone who feels they are your enemy would rejoice at your pain. You know, that's part of the nature of being an enemy, especially in a conflict as old and as deep as this one. And I think when we talk about the Jewish response, because I think that's important, uh, you know, we, we started really with that, the Jewish response, the revenge attack on Huara Sunday night. 
I would argue that nearly all of Israeli society is completely oblivious to the fact that we systematically harm Palestinians on a daily basis to the extent that we do. Like, I think most of us don't see that. Most Israelis don't believe Palestinian violence to be acts of resistance to actual oppression. Most Israelis genuinely believe that Palestinians, or at least a high percentage of them, engage in violence against us because they have some ideological drive to kill Jews or some ideological drive to destroy the Jewish political independence we've spent thousands of years struggling to regain in this land. And given the fact that most Israelis genuinely believe this, most Israelis genuinely see the situation as Palestinians are just ideologically driven to kill Jews and there's no real oppression that they're resisting and trying to fight back against, then it makes sense that the healthiest response to that understanding of reality might be a ferocious revenge attack on Hawara by the nearby Jews, meaning that Given the fact that they see things that way, uh, when you have a situation like what happened on Sunday where two Jews are killed by Palestinians in Huara, uh, perhaps we should see the healthiest possible response as a revenge attack on Huara by nearby Jews. Meaning the Jews living in the Sumerian mountains in the northern West Bank don't experience the conflict the way most Israelis or Palestinians do. They see themselves as a proud rooted tribe living outside of Israel's state structure for the most part. And they see themselves as locked in a somewhat horizontal conflict with other local tribes. Uh, it's a very different relationship dynamic uh, than like colonizer and colonized, which is, I think, the dynamic that we see with the state and the army in relation to the Palestinians. Now, the Jewish violence that took place in Hawara um, it's a very different kind of violence than what most Palestinians normally experience from Israel. You know, in many ways, it's actually much closer to the violence that takes place between other regional groups in the Middle East. Uh, there's no pretentiousness in this type of violence. There's no Western expressions of superiority. It's basically just rage and righteous indignation. And like we said, when, when that revenge attack ended, you know, the Jews held an evening tefillah, like they held an Aravit service together on the spot where they just had their victory. And that's a, a very powerful image, I think, you know, the Jews from the mountains just like storming the Palestinian village in a revenge attack, uh, winning, you know, setting fire to a bunch of stuff and then holding an Aravit service. You know, I, I imagine, you know, Shema Yisrael was loud. I imagine uh, Kaddish was loud, especially Yehishmirabah, you know, was very loud. You know, that's a very powerful image. And, and I think we need to understand that, you know, you were talking about how we often, or Israel as a state, relates to the West Bank, you know, as the way the Americans relate to Afghanistan or the way the French related to Algeria. Um, these Jews relate to it as their homeland. They see it as like the land of their ancestors. They see themselves as biblical characters with deep roots in the land, um, confronted with a hostile population that they believe wants them either dead or displaced. Yeah. It's not a simple issue. Like, on the one hand, obviously, violence is unfortunate. You know, people get hurt, uh, lives are ended, lives are ruined. And it's also important to uh, keep in mind that if we relate to the state of Israel as, first of all, Yisod Kiseh Hashem Ba'olam, as like the beginning of Hashem's throne in the world, and we see it as the vehicle through which the Jewish people collectively fulfill the mitzvah of possessing the land, then... 
vigilante violence actually does undermine that vehicle. It's not like, you know, the Greeks are ruling our land or the British are ruling our land or the Romans are ruling our land and we have a mitzvah to organize and fight, resist them. You know, we have a state, we have an army, we have laws. Like anything that functions outside of that is undermining Jewish sovereignty, which is, uh, you know, I think halachically very problematic. So I'm not, I, I want it to be very clear. I'm not advocating for what the Jews did in Hawara Sunday night. I'm trying to understand it and explain it within the broader context of Israel's national development. Right. Yeah. You know, so on the one hand, I, I think it's highly problematic when civilians take the law into their own hands uh, violently. You know, violence in general is problematic. And I think we're living in a violent situation. Uh, but, but I think it's also important to appreciate that there are different types of violence and violence is also a means of communication. And what I see different about this violence, uh, the violence we saw at Hawara Sunday night versus state violence, you know, Sahel violence, is that a lot of the violence perpetrated by the state and by the army is really of a colonial nature. Like the style is very colonial and it, it, it has a habit of communicating yeah, we're colonizers, and reinforcing that idea in the minds of Palestinians. Um, I think this violence, the violence we saw at Hawara Sunday night, communicates something else. I think it communicates, yeah, we're just like you. Yeah, we're, we're like everybody else in this region. And it looked much more like a tribal conflict between, you know, warring identities and less is like colonizer and colonized. Now, keep in mind that these Jews don't see themselves as representatives of the state, as really part of the state in, in any way. They see themselves as functioning outside of it, and they often see themselves as victims of it. So it's a, it's a whole different dynamic that I think most people aren't fully appreciating. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I would say, even though I'm not advocating or condoning this type of violence, I, I would say that unlike settler colonial violence, this type of violence, what we'll call, I don't know, native violence, can potentially create the conditions for a better relationship down the road, while settler colonial violence cannot. Right. Yes, agree 100%. And I think that it's a shame, uh, like as you said, since any action, since any vigilante action is ultimately undermining the collective Jewish sovereignty over the land, I think it's a shame that it's descended to this level, that people feel compelled that they have to take action into their own hands, that they have no other choice. I think that this is the real tragedy, even from our perspective, even if you're going to assume that Hawara is an enemy city, which I personally believe is the most accurate way to view it. And even if you're going to say that, that the actions taken were justified, I think the very fact that there are so many citizens of Israel, so many people that live in Yudavish Rome that feel that they have no other choice but to take the law into their own hands, so to speak, I think that that is the tragedy. True, I think that's a fair point, and, and that speaks to the deterioration of our security situation. And again, a lot of that has to do with maybe Zionism as an ideology not having real answers for our security situation, or like the people at the highest echelons of the Israeli security establishment just not knowing how to handle a situation like this. I mean, long term, they, they know how to put little band-aids on and try to make quiet, but they don't know how to really resolve this. Um, and, and I would argue that Israeli society isn't psychologically ready to resolve this. That's another problem. But the, the irony is, and this is maybe the most important point, 
is those Jews, those Jews who attacked Hawara, in my mind, represent the Jews who should be, or at least are most equipped, best equipped, to ultimately become our peacemakers. They're the Jews that I often try to pull into dialogue sessions with Palestinians, because they're the Jews who are fully living our national story and are willing to fight, kill, and die for what they believe to be important to that story. They, they also, by the way, share a lot of similar experiences to Palestinians, whether we're talking about politically motivated house demolitions, administrative detention, aggressive interrogation, which essentially means torture, you know, for confessions and whatnot. They also often get beaten up by, uh, by security forces, sometimes even shot with rubber bullets, meaning they share experiences with Palestinians that could potentially build bridges. Uh, the problem is most of them are not ready for a conversation with Palestinians. Most of them are not ready to see the Palestinian identity of the Palestinian narrative or the Palestinian experience. But I do believe that they are probably the most equipped to be our best ambassadors to Palestinian society and probably to a lot of the region. Yes, I agree 100%. There's a lot of irony in what you're saying that the people that we're seeing that are battling it out in the Shomron right now actually share the most experiences of any two uh, groups in Israel right now. And yes, I do think that any hope of progress uh, rests on the possibility of those two groups recognizing that, ultimately. Yeah. And another important point to keep in mind here is that the outside world tends to look at West Bank Jews as a monolith. And uh, that's really not the case. You know, we're different. I think there is a certain ideological common denominator that for the most part unites the vast majority of Jews in the West Bank, that we're a proud ancient people that was unjustly displaced from here, that we managed to retain our identity in exile for nearly 2,000 years against all odds, that we miraculously came back to the land we'd been displaced from and took possession of it, revived our ancient language, uh, established a state, and that the international community is trying to displace us again through a two-state solution. And the best means of resistance we've figured out so far is to populate as much of the West Bank as we can, what we experience as the cradle of Jewish civilization, uh, in order to make uh, displacing us logistically impossible. That's the best method of resistance we've figured out so far. I would suggest that we're at a point where we need to add to that some kind of political alliance with Palestinian forces so we can speak to the world in one voice against the partition of our land. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of diversity uh, when you look at the Jewish communities in the West Bank. Uh, and there are two spectrums uh, that I believe are inversed. One spectrum is the extent to which Jews in the West Bank are living according to settler colonial structures, uh, meaning the extent to which Jews are living behind barricades, behind walls, behind fences, in affluent Western-style suburban communities with full military protection, monopolizing the natural resources of the area, right? And then the, the other spectrum is violence. And often, what, what a lot of people don't understand, I know that when the foreign media portrays uh, Jews behaving violently, it's all kind of compounded and you think it's like, those same bougie Jews in Gush Etzion living in their you know, nice suburban homes with their lawns being protected by the military while monopolizing natural resources, uh, putting on masks and attacking Palestinians. But no, the truth is that the most settler 
of the Jews in the West Bank are often the least violent, and the most violent are often the least, quote-unquote, settler, meaning they do not rely on military protection, their relationship with the army is, is not so good, uh, and they often experience themselves as the victims of Israeli security forces. Um, they often do not have fences around their communities. They believe that the only way to ensure their security is to make hostile populations afraid to come close to them. They they see themselves as deeply rooted to the land. There's much more of, uh, whether it's a conscious or subconscious effort to re-indigenize into the region and to reconnect to the roots on a deeper level. Uh, so I think that needs to be taken into consideration when we have these conversations and, and speak about uh, Jews in the West Bank and their behavior. Right, uh, yeah. Rav Shema Sistin, thank you so much for joining me. I think this is a really important conversation. Thank you for having me on, and um, I hope this won't be the last conversation. Shama, you want to quickly tell listeners where they can find your podcast, where they can find some of your writings? Yes, of course. I'm on all the usual places. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, I have a regular podcast from the from the conversations that I have in Yeshiva um, in the Old City uh, on Spotify. So the name of that podcast is Beit Shammai. B-E-I-T, Shamai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I. I hope uh, all the listeners will feel free to check that out. And uh, if listeners are interested in checking out our show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 93.